This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. It is Bryce and Ren here, co-founders of Equity Mates Media, and we're here to announce our IPO. That's right. Equity Mates' initial party offering is here FinFest is coming. We're calling all bulls, bears, and party animals. The market's closed, the bar is open, and we're trading ideas at Australia's biggest investing festival. With expert speakers, special guests, DJs, and booze, it's an inspiring and empowering event for investors of any level of experience. So save the date, 15th of October, 2022. Head to equitymates.com slash FinFest to register your interest today. Equitymates FinFest is powered by Stake. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this interview. We've got a returning expert who I like to think is our, one of our correspondents in two ways. First of all, a uh, an American correspondent, well, an Australian who's making it over in the States. Yep. And then second of all, our correspondent from the world of value investing. Yes, I know. And uh, we're really excited. <laughs> we're really excited <laughs> about this interview. It's at our absolute pleasure to welcome back to Equity Mates, Tobias Carlisle. Tobias, welcome. Thanks, fellas. That was a really kind introduction. I love those intros. <laughs> yeah, I, remember, I remember when I was in, I used to watch daytime TV, I'm not, you know, like morning TV before I went to work in Australia and that's Sometimes I'd flash over to the dude in Los Angeles and I'd think, there yeah. we go, that's the job that you want. <laughs> well, you've got it. That's you've got your the job. job. Now, yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've put the green screen up so you guys can stick in whatever kind of Los Angeles background you want. Put the Hollywood yeah, sign. Yeah, nice. It's <laughs> actually a good idea. <laughs> so I'm for those this from my mum's basement in, in Rome or something. <laughs> I'll just look it up on the. I'll, I'll look it up on the internet when you ask me what the weather's like. <laughs> if you have just joined Equity Mates for the first time, welcome. Uh, Tobias has joined us uh, many times before, we would stress uh, and encourage you to go and listen to our previous episodes with him. Tobias is the portfolio manager of uh, Acquire's funds, including the New York Stock Exchange list- listed
listed ETF acquirers deep value, ticker code DEEP, and the author of multiple books, including Deep Value and The Acquirer's Multiple. Tobias is an Australian, now based in the United States, as Ren said, and is our absolute go-to on all things value investing. And given the recent sell-off in the high growth uh, part of the market, the largely unprofitable companies, we thought that it would be a really interesting time to check in with Tobias to hear his take on the market and how he th- sees things playing out. So um, let's crack in. Yeah, so Tobias, let's start uh, big picture. Um, if we've been living under a rock for the past six months, haven't turned on the news, uh, haven't checked the markets, um, can you sort of summarize uh, what's been happening, especially where you are in the States? What have we seen over the past six months? It's pro- let's, So let's, let's wind back a little bit more than six months. Let's say 12 months. So as sometimes happens in the markets, the markets get speculative and stuff that's sort of more more pie in the sky sort of the the, the vibe of it you know <laughs> uh, rather than actually making any money or doing anything like that which ultimately is what you want your public companies to do but the stuff that that promised better returns sort of down the road ran up a really really long way and that that happens sort of regularly in the markets but like say every 10 or 20 years or so you get a a speculative bubble and it's often concentrated in tech is very popular tech sort of there was a tech bubble in 69 there was a tech bubble in uh you know 1999 and there's probably been another one that we've just gone through and so that all ran up i don't know whether it was the covid lockdowns or stimulus payments or easy money it sort of all exploded 2019 2020 and it topped out February 12 last year. And I think the best representative of that is the ARK, Kathy Woods mm. um, ETF, ARK, A-R-K-K, which topped out at $156 on February 12 last year. And since then, the companies in that ARK complex have been down sort of variously 75, 80%. Some of them deservedly so. There's probably some in there that, that are getting to, to good value. Um, I haven't sifted through. I haven't seen a lot of them because I tend to be I'm a deep value investor. So if you if you think about Buffett as being, Buffett's like a, he calls himself a franchise investor. He's looking for stuff that will compound and grow over time and likes brands, well-known brands and things like that. So Apple's a great example or Coca-Cola, those are famous things that he's held. Seas Candy, which is very sort of popular over here. Those things grow and compound over time. So he says he'll pay a reasonable price for what he regards as a wonderful company. What I try to do is I, I will buy at a bigger discount for a less good company. They can be cyclical businesses. And so I you know, end up with a portfolio that can be a little bit heavier, industry, cyclicals. And um, that stuff tends to be, that's when the market is ripping and all the really speculative stuff is going well, uh, nobody wants to be anywhere near the cyclical. So the cyclical's <laughs> got smashed smithereens. <laughs> They've had a little recovery over the last sort of 12 months. Like basically when Cathy's portfolio topped out on February 12, that was the that's the worst relative performance I've had in my entire career, but certainly which showed up in the ETFs. And then I've gone the other direction mm. since then. So I've had a pretty good run over the last 12 months. I've got two ETFs. I've got the Acquirers Fund, which is ZIG, which is mid-cap and large-cap US equities, and uh, Acquirers Deep Value, which is small and micro. Uh, and the ticker of that is deep. Yeah, nice. I love the ticker codes that you get with ATFs, deep and then zig, which I imagine is you zig when others zag. That's the idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk us through like what are some of the metrics telling us since Feb 12 last year when we saw that the peak of ARC 
How does this fall over since since then to now? How does that compare to some of the other falls that we've seen in our lifetime? You know, you mentioned there the 99 um, into 2000. Of course, there was the 2008 GFC as well. Is this time any different? That's an interesting question. So I didn't mention in that earlier, the two examples that I gave earlier, they were like the 69 bubble. And that was when, like, if you just had Tronics in your name, it was like electronics was the was the big thing then. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Isn't it? They were the really popular things of the day and they, they all got smashed up. And then the famous bear market was like the 73, 74 bear market, which was actually worse than 1929 on a real basis because they printed so much money that nominally it wasn't as bad. So nominally it's like, what did the actual index do? But real is like adjusted for inflation. Mm. And so adjusted for inflation, 73, 74 was, was worse than 29, which is kind of hard to, hard wow. to wrap your head around. But that, that, that's, that's statistically that's true. And so then the next one, uh, there may have been another one in between. I just, I just don't think of it that, this way. And then 1999, 2000 was a similar thing where it was the dot-com boom. You know, the dot-coms and the electronics, they're kind of like the emblematic stocks of the bubble. They're the things that everyone thinks about, but it does tend to be a little bit more broader based than that. So the, the 69, 70, 73, 74 kind of boom and bust, um, that was the nifty 50 era. Mm. And the idea was that there were these 50 stocks that were so good that you just had to have them in your portfolio and you could pay any price for them. And it didn't matter because they grew so fast that over time, whatever price you paid for them, they just grew into them. So you, you paid these enormous price to sales metrics, you know, very stretched and it would grow into it. And then that, that sort of thesis was found out subsequently when all of that stuff got smashed to smithereens, even though they did ultimately tend to perform quite well, but you just don't want to be paying over what something's worth when you're buying it. Same thing happened in 99. The stuff that everybody knows about is all the dot-com stuff that everybody was in. And, and the same thing will be this time around, it'll be the arc. I don't know if it'll be software as a service or what what they will ultimately decide will be the emblem of the whole thing. But 99, 2000, like Walmart got really expensive. Walmart, even though underneath it was a very good business, it was still compounding away. Like the business was growing like 30% a year still over that entire period. The stock just went nowhere for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Microsoft was the same. GE, same deal. Everything just got too expensive in 1999. What tends to happen, they have a little bit of volatility, they crash with everything else, but then they can't ever kind of rally back. And so you get 10 or 15 years of just going sideways. And I suspect the same thing will happen this time. That there's There are a lot of good businesses out there. Fang might be it, something like that. So Tobias, hearing you talk about the Nifty 50 uh, just makes me think about the index era that we're living in today where... You know, we talk about the Fang stocks as sort of these brilliant companies that you can sort of buy at any price, but also just, you know, the ASX 200 index over here in Australia, S&P 500 over in the States. Do you think there's echoes of this um, nifty 50 thinking in today's sort of passive investing market? 100%. And it's, as you point out, I think the new word for the nifty 50 is Fang. And or Fat Man or whatever, whatever kind <laughs> of Fat Man includes Tesla. I think I think you know, Bryce I feel- and I are trying to coin Ant Mama, and you include Tesla and Nvidia now. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I feel it's funny, you know. A few of those, a few of those names have taken a header. So Netflix is Netflix has taken a header. Facebook's taken mm. a header. You know, if I had to pick one, Tesla, I, I'm I just shake my head all the time at Tesla. I don't understand how Tesla trades. It's it's silly expensive and it's not that great a business, but it is growing pretty quickly. So it might be that the growth 
just fools people for a while, but it doesn't actually, not, not much of it falls down to the bottom mm. line of that business. Yeah, Fang will ultimately, probably that will be the nifty 50. And it, it's entirely conceivable to me that in 10 years' time, we could look at some combination of those bigger companies and they haven't really gone anywhere. Although having said that, I would take it on a case-by-case basis because mm. I don't think, I think Facebook is is undervalued here. The question is whether the business will be as good as it has been in the future. Microsoft, like you can run a chart of Microsoft's multiple expansion. It's amazing. Mm, like the, mm. It has grown earnings very quickly, but the multiple expansion has been even higher. It's a mm. ski jump mm. kind of look to it. It's hard to see it doing that again, the ski jump part of it. Like the earnings could keep on going, but maybe the valuation will not go up as fast. And then Alphabet doing a little buyback. So evidently they think that's cheapish. Amazon too. Like I, I just I can see like these things maybe muddling through, but I don't I don't think the next decade will look nearly as cheery as the last decade has looked. Yeah, interesting. So to us, a lot of the focus has been obviously on the collapse of the high growth and the vibe companies that you mentioned at the yeah. top. I like that term. We're, we're going to coin that term the vibe as well. companies, yeah. A lot of the equity mates only, community are I in the- I can't use that over here because only Aussies will get the vibe. Yeah, they get the vibe of it, yeah. Um, and a lot of our community have obviously uh, bought into those companies and, and have had a great run. Are you seeing similar sort of falls in the value part of the market? Something that we don't necessarily discuss as much on the show. So it'd be good to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, value value sort of had its bear market. So I've got a friend, Mikhail Samanov, who's, who's stitched together these three data sets that run back to like 1825. The data gets progressively worse as you get further back, but they like the gold standard of, of data in the States is the French data set. And that's Ken French, who's Fanner and French, who did this like famous research that came out in 1992 called the cross-section of returns. And he, that's where he came up with he and Fama, Eugene Fama, who's got a Nobel Prize for behavioral economics. They were the ones who identified the different factors. And one of the factors is value, which they defined as price to book, which I don't use and nobody uses, no, no practitioner uses price to book, but it's academics like it because it doesn't vary much from quarter to quarter. Book's pretty steady. Your assets don't change much, whereas your earnings can be up and down and cash flow is up and down all over the place. So they advocated for these factors saying that there's there's a market factor, you know, that's beta. Anybody's done any sort of like entry-level finance will know there's beta and then there's additional risk and volatility and then you've got the small minus large, which is the the small factor, and high minus low, which is the value factor. And they've now they've identified like another two hundred and six. There's probably as many factors as there are stocks now, so it's not very <laughs> useful anymore. None of them are really useful. But they have their data set that runs back to about nineteen twenty six. And then there's another data set by the Cows Commission, and he had this question. It came out in nineteen, I think, at twenty five to like eighteen seventy five or something crazy like that. And he had this question whether there was any skill in stock picking. And he got these people who wrote newsletters and he put them on punch cards, which was like the first time that anybody had used a computer to do any of this stuff. And Benjamin Graham saw it, was where Benjamin Graham got the idea, legend has it, for for his sort of value strategy where it said you could do about 15% a year if you just bought these cheap stocks through this period of time. But the Cowles Commission, Alfred Cowles was his name, he decided that there was no skill in stock picking. It was it was a random walk, which is where we get a lot of the a lot of the efficient market theory from. But then these guys more recently have gone and found every annual report from a public company that they could dig up from 1875. And I think it goes back to 1825 in the States. Because they didn't have to publish all of the financial statements that we get today. They might have given you a balance sheet, but they weren't as complete as they are. And there was no standardization. But they did, if they paid a dividend, 
you could use that as like a proxy for value. So they've looked at the dividend yields of these companies and found that companies with higher dividend yields perform better. So what they have been able to do is look back to 1825 to 2020, say, and they've found that value has massively outperformed through that whole period, but it's also had its worst drawdown in the last 200 years. And that's the one that ended in September 2020, which is kind of amazing that it took that long. The drawdown sort of started, it's like a 10 or 15 year drawdown where value hasn't worked very well. So there aren't very many value guys or <laughs> yeah. not many people who want to identify themselves as value yeah. anymore because it's it's been so ugly for so long. Mm, but mm. I think that it does seem to have turned the corner, like depending on what kind of value you are, if you're just a, if you like the leveraged shitty kind of companies, you, you started ripping around September 2020. If you're like me and you're like a slightly higher quality kind of value where they've got reasonable balance sheets and cash flows and things like that, it took a little bit longer because I think there was a bit of short covering and then the, the reflation trade, the reopening trade as it was called for a little while there. And then so basically mine took about six months longer and my stuff started working around February last year. And that's that's sort of been the the change that people are talking about, like go and buy value stocks, what they're saying is just go and buy stuff that's actually got cash flows and assets. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> that's traditionally been the way that, you know, that's investing. Everything else is sort of speculation. Yeah. Well, Tobias, you uh, you had a, you had a, probably had a tough time there. I think your book, Deep Value, came out in the early 2010s or mid 2010s. Top ticked it. <laughs> <laughs> so full 2014, credit. 2014, absolutely top ticked it. <laughs> so full credit for uh, sticking with the value strategy <laughs> through what was probably six quite long years. Um, you must be, yeah, uh, a bit longer than that. You must be reveling uh, in, in the resurgence of value at the moment. It's been fun. It, you know, it's, it's hard to trust it yet. And I got to say, since the start of the year, you know, it's been a little bit softer again, because it's weird the way that the market works. Like probably there's this Ukraine situation building or whatever it's been since the start of the year. So that means that the Fed probably won't raise rates, which means that the tech stocks all start running again. Like as if all of the, the great rate traders are going and putting on their bets by getting leverage along all of the, the, the sassiest stocks in the market. For some reason, that hurts the stuff that I have. So I've had, I've had another little sell-off since the start of the year, but I can have a sort of top-down look at my portfolio and what I estimate the forward returns will be. And as you can imagine, as, this market goes, as the stocks go down, the forward returns, particularly in value stocks, get better. And I think they're like three times what the ARC complex are likely to do on an annual basis for a long long way out here because the ARC stuff is still expensive. It's hard to believe because it's come off so much. But the, for a long time, they were saying if it gets back to a 10 times sales multiple, that's cheap. But if you look back historically, like it's very rare that stuff gets as expensive as 10 times. And now like 10 times sales multiple for an ARC stock, that's a deep value stock. And I think that's what <laughs> Kathy's been saying. She's been talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you look at some of those names, like uh, Zoom is still up 30% from pre-pandemic. It just went on a round trip and it was up 500% at one stage. And, you know, Peloton probably flat from where it listed, but it was right. just, you know, down, well, it's down 80% from its all-time highs. We want to move uh, and talk about, I guess, the value universe and how you look for opportunity there. But uh, I think we we do have to just get your thoughts on where to from here for these growth companies. So when you think about the, you know, the Teladocs, the Rokus, the Zooms, the Pelotons, the Kathy Wood stocks, do you have a view on uh, what their future holds? Well, her biggest holding is Tesla. Tesla's still very, very expensive by any measure. It really is assuming an enormous amount of underlying growth. I like Elon Musk, and I think he's, I think he's great entrepreneur, but it's just the business is what the business is. It's still growing very quickly. So 
I think it grew 50% last year, which is kind of amazing. Like it's a pretty big business, but the stock price is just way, way ahead of where any, anywhere that it can get to reasonably in the next 10 years or so. So that's her biggest holding. So that'll be, that'll be a tough, uh, that'll be a little bit of a weight in the portfolio. I think the other things like, so Zoom is interesting. So my co-host on uh, my little podcast, he had a bet with somebody where he had Curate, which is which is the home shopping network, I think, home shopping network or one of those, um, something like that over here. Like that's not a great business, but there are people who watch that stuff are welded on devotees and <laughs> they, uh, they spend a lot of money on it. And it's controlled by um, John Malone and the Liberty guys who are very smart capital allocators. And so they've been doing some financial engineering in the back of that. And that's sort of got that stock moving and it's massively outperforming Zoom. So the, he had this little bet with somebody where he was long Curate, which is the owner of that. And they were long Zoom. Zoom's been smashed to smithereens and Curate's done quite well. But now he wants to reverse the bet, which I think is probably not a bad idea because Zoom, Zoom isn't what I would regard as deep value, but it is free cash flow positive and it is growing pretty rapidly. The growth is slowing pretty substantially, but I don't think Zoom's going away. I mean, I use Zoom for a lot of stuff. Something will become a standard and it's just easy for everybody to get on the same thing and use it. Then it probably, and at the moment it's looking like Zoom. It's shame for the guys who started Skype. Like it could have been Skype. <laughs> they, just didn't, they didn't update the software for I 10 know. years. Yeah. Well, they, they sold to Microsoft. So, you know, they're, they're okay. They did well. It's been yeah. sold a few times, right? Is it? It's, yeah, now it's now it's owned by Microsoft. I think things used to go to die at Microsoft. But they've <laughs> yeah. Done well yeah. <laughs> So Tobias, before we uh, take a look at the opportunities in value, we're just going to take a very quick break and uh, hear from our sponsors. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there's no doubt that you've got a fresh glow about you and uh, the moment for value investors are here. (laughs) Uh, Your universe is a lot bigger than it was perhaps a year or two ago and um, we're really interested to hear about how you're going through the process of filtering through the opportunity set. You've spoken about free cash flow and and, uh, and and looking through some of the companies that have taken a big hit. So can you talk us through and talk our, our, um, the community through how you go about filtering and finding investment opportunity? I have a little website that shows what I think are some good opportunities and you can screen a few different ways. This is the update that I made to this website. So previously <laughs> it's been in the acquirers multiple, which is basically the way that private equity firms and activist investors think about stocks. You look at the operating income flowing in to the business 
um, which is adjusted for interest and taxes. So that's EBIT operating income. And then you compare that to the enterprise value. So the market cap is what the stock is trading at multiplied by the number of shares outstanding. And then it's like owning a house. Like that, the market cap is the equity in your house. So if you own, if you have a mortgage on your house, you could have a $1 million house with a $900,000 mortgage and $100,000 in equity. The equity is the market cap and it doesn't tell you what the house is worth and it doesn't tell you how much debt you've got in your house, which are important things to know as an investor. And so what my metric does is it looks at the enterprise value, which is the total price of that house, compares it to the income. You know, so if you had, if it was a rental and you were generating rent income, you would want to know how much money does this house relative to another house down the street. And ideally you want to be generating as much income as you possibly can and paying as little as you possibly can. That's like the price discussion. That's a very good metric and has worked very well for a long period of time. I do other things in there as well. That's sort of the first cut. But one of the other things that you, you want to look at is how much money does the company generate on what it has invested in it? So companies like Google and Facebook, they don't have a whole lot of assets in them, but they generate lots of returns. And they've got some protection by virtue of the fact that they're networked and the more people that use them, the more valuable they become. In Facebook's example, it's been why it's been so important for Facebook to, you know, that Instagram acquisition probably saved Facebook. And now they run this problem where TikTok has grown bigger than they are. I think where Facebook and Instagram were social, so you wanted to see what your friends were doing on there. TikTok is different. TikTok is viral. It's what is the most interesting thing that every other person on the site is looking at. And it feeds you that. So you want to go viral. And it's a slightly different sort of approach. But I think that. Instagram has achieved a lot of that virality anyway, because there's different ways of engaging with Instagram with the reels, and they've tried to capture a lot of that stuff. But the idea is basically how much assets does it take to generate how much operating income because we can make it to make it more comparable to the uh, enterprise value discussion that we're having before. I look for those things. Ideally, you want something cheap and you want something that can throw off plenty of cash based on what's invested in it. And I try to fill a portfolio up with things that are reinvesting at pretty high rates of return on an incremental basis um, that have some sort of protection there and that have a very long history of, of actually doing that. It's very unlikely that I hold a lot of tech stuff. I just tend to hold stuff that's been around for a while. But funnily enough, that does mean that I end up holding, I've got some .com 1.0 stuff in there. I own Oracle wow. and I own Cisco. <laughs> because, because those are still, and, and Net Appliance, Net App, NTAP. They're funny, they're funny businesses because they're, they're sort of internet plumbing now. They're, they're like almost utilities that mm. make plenty of money. Wow. Um, and because they're cheap, they buy back stock all the time. So that's great if, you, if you're a shareholder. At the time of the meta change, Ren and I made a bet that uh, I think it would eventually hit a trillion dollar market cap. Ren doesn't think it ever will. Whose side of the bet are you on, Tobias? Well, so it's, I think it's about $567 billion mm. today, around about there. And I think it's about half price. So I think it's worth about a trillion bucks. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and that's a deep value investor. That's a deep, yeah. <laughs> so here's the, here's the wrinkle to it, though. Here's the wrinkle. I don't own it and I may end up owning it. I may not end up owning it. I don't, I don't know. I haven't made that decision yet. I don't make that decision for another few weeks in relation to Facebook. But Facebook's price relative to its fundamentals is wrong right now. It's either half price or its fundamentals are going to deteriorate to the point that it's only worth where it's trading. And so the market, you know, we assume that the market is 
more right about these things than wrong. So the, the thesis that I have to prove to myself in order to buy this thing is that it's not going to deteriorate as much as that. And they've got some headwinds. They've got some real issues. And that is that even though the data doesn't seem to show this, the data seems to show that there are plenty of people still using the website Bots. Even the blue website. They're yes, all bots. They're all bots. They're That's all bots. our theory. <laughs> they're not you real think people. It's all, all bots. Yeah, yeah they're, they're not real people. If our, if our Facebook group is anything to go on, I reckon about half of Facebook's users are bots. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. So I, I don't know anybody who uses the blue book, and I, I don't, I haven't, I've got accounts on that I haven't. I don't think I've locked into them for like five years. Mm, I have exactly. no idea what's in there. Yeah, you know, but I use, I still use Instagram. Like I started using Instagram because mates of mine were having kids, and I wanted to see them with their, their kids. But now nobody posts on Instagram anymore either. And I'm too old for TikTok. I'm not going to go and figure out how to use TikTok. <laughs> and my kids are too young to use that stuff. So I'm sort of like, business analysis is really, really hard. That's why I tend to be much more of a quantitative type investor. I look at the financials and I try and figure out what the financials are doing. But I acknowledge that, you know, Facebook's got, it's it's got an uphill battle. And this meta the metaverse thing, you know, I, I don't know if anybody wants to go back into AOL's walled garden, which is what the metaverse sounds like mm-hmm. to me. I don't, I don't know. But Zuck is very smart. They earn a lot of money on the money that they've got invested in there. In terms of advertising, there's really only people advertise on Google and they advertise on Facebook and they advertise more on Facebook because they can get that more granular. They know you know, what you like and who you are when you're on there. So they like advertising to you that way. I think it's worth taking the bet. But I don't know that it's going to work out. <laughs> That's betting. That, that is betting, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Tobias, we mentioned a number of quantitative factors there, you know, the market cap and then the um, enterprise value. We've looked at, you know, return on invested capital or return on equity, things like free cash flow, a lot of quantitative factors. I guess, do qualitative factors like quality of management uh, come into play in your filtering uh, process? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So they do, but I've figured out a way to turn them into quantitative factors. <laughs> and the reason, that I do, the reason that I do that is that nobody becomes a CEO unless they're pretty charismatic people. Mm. You know, they, They're people who are good at sales. They tend to be pretty good looking, well-dressed, fragrant, all those kind of things. Fra- good at telling <laughs> a good story. Fragrant. Anyone can be fragrant. <laughs> <laughs> and yet some people aren't, so explain that. True, true. So, I'd, so I'd yeah. love to see a study on CEOs and how fragrant they are and maybe we rank them. <laughs> but all of those, the point is that all of those things, you can find that they, you know, they're very persuasive and you've got all of these like these things that unconscious things working on you when you're talking to them. And so you like to believe what they say. Does likability or them saying the right thing, therefore translate into them executing in that way or achieving those things? Or can they even do that? Because there are always competitive pressures. There's stuff going on in the firms. There's just a million pieces moving. So what I like to do is I've found these sort of quantitative ways of doing it. And one of my favorites is just share buybacks. So that's a very powerful signal. I think there there are funds that exist and all they do is buy stuff that has the highest share buyback going on. And sometimes they short stuff that's got the most shares issued. And so if you think about the reason why that is, a company, anybody can do a buyback at any stage. The buybacks are almost always done at the wrong price at the top of the market. And there's no buybacks done at the bottom of the market. So you'd say that sounds like a terrible factor. But the way that you control it is you say they have to be material buybacks. They have to be material relative to the size of the business relative to the size of the company. And what that achieves is it tells you that they're generating the free cash flow. They have the resources there to do the buyback. 
they're able to do it in a material size, which means that it's undervalued relative to what they can spend on it. And it also tells you that management is doing the right thing, that if, they're, if they are undervalued, often your stock is the best option for you. The tension though is, of course, when, when you get undervalued in your industry, often there's a lot of other undervalued companies around in your industry. That's a good time to be going and doing acquisitions if you've got the firepower on the balance sheet to do it. So the record of CEOs doing acquisitions is pretty bad. So my preference would be like the least objectionable use of capital is typically to buy back stock. So that's one really simple way of measuring how good management is. Are they doing a buyback? And when you look right now at the big companies that are flowing cash and doing buybacks, you know, they are like Facebook's doing a buyback. And, and that's a good time, I think, for Facebook to be doing a buyback. So that's what the market is telling you. When you get too cheap, the market is telling companies to liquidate. And so responsive management should listen to that signal from the market and liquidate, which is what you're doing when you're buying back so before we get to some specific companies that are on your screens and uh, we always find the companies uh, super interesting that you bring to the community outside of tech and growth sell sell off are there any industries or sectors that are really sort of appearing frequently on your value screens at the moment well energy has been one for a while if if you needed a i sort of joked about this a little bit on the podcast but the best signal for energy it turns out the best country signal is when oil went negative, yeah. whenever that was, sort of 2020, 2020 or whenever that yeah. was, late 2020. That was a pretty good signal to go and buy a whole lot of oil companies because since then they've all had this, this great rip. And even before oil went negative, if you looked at the composition, you know, at one stage, Exxon was the biggest company in the stock market in the US and, for, and it was for a long time, it occupied a very big chunk of the market. And that, that whole energy industry has now shrunk down to virtually nothing. Energy still basically powers the entire economy. And if we have a if we have a crash here, it's not going to be because the Fed has raised interest rates. It's because energy has got so expensive and it sort of achieves the same thing. Energy filters into everything. Mm. It acts somewhat like an interest rate does. It just makes stuff more expensive to do. So I think energy as a sector has been interesting and the screens were certainly full of that stuff and they still seem to be in there. And everything from, you know, the ConocoPhillips kind of produces to the midstream to the pipelines, to, but it's all, the whole complex is cheap and the whole complex has been cheap for a little while. So typically these things take a long time to play out. And if the, like if the Ukraine and Russia thing blows up even more than it is, that's their big energy exporter. So that's going to get even even wilder, I think. Mm-hmm. So Tobias, I uh, would love to uh, move to a couple of uh, individual stocks because uh, we imagine that it's uh, the stocks that are at the top of your screen are stocks that we probably haven't spoken a lot about on the podcast, us being young people that are just obsessed with growth names. And, um, <laughs> the vibe. So, yeah, and vibe company. <laughs> so um, we'd love to maybe unpack a couple uh, and just hear what the company does what metrics uh, make it look attractive from a value perspective? And then I guess, are there any risks when it comes to looking at these companies? Could they be a value trap? What's the watch out? How do you sort of navigate that? So we'd love to turn it over to you. Uh, what what are some of the companies that are appearing top of your screens at the moment? The one that was in the screen for a while that has started to run a little bit was Lockheed Martin. It was kind of interesting. The reason that Lockheed Martin gets cheap is because every time a new president comes in over here, the, the market seems to get nervous about the amount of money that will be spent on defense and Lockheed Martin makes a lot of the, the fighter jets and, and that sort of stuff. And so Lockheed Martin tends to sell off, but Lockheed Martin's been very consistent 
uh, for a very long period of time. And so I bought Lockheed Martin last year when it was reasonably undervalued and it was probably a reasonably good stock too. And Lockheed Martin's done like when you get some sort of issue in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. Lockheed Martin takes off like a scalded cat. Uh, you know, I don't want to be a war profiteer, but as my as my co-host uh, points out, they only do well when when peace comes back. So maybe you, you, maybe we're a peace profiteer in that instance. The things that are in the screen at the moment that really stand out to me, there are two. One is, uh, and these are these are sin type stocks, but Philip Morris <laughs> and Altria, you know, they've both got incredible returns on assets over the last five years. They're like forty percent return on on assets, which is extraordinarily it's high. It's amazing, and they're, it's and they're a, not that expensive. It's amazing how these tobacco stocks just keep doing it. Yeah, they seem to have fewer users, but they just they're quite sticky, the users. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, I, I, I don't know how good everybody feels about buying those things. They're certainly not, they're not really uh, companies that I feel particularly comfortably hold, holding and I don't, I don't stick them in the fund or anything like that. Facebook is another one. Like, and I think there's a pretty good argument that, you know, lots of people think that Facebook is a sin type stock too. So th- those are the ones that when I, when I open up my screen, they really stand out as being unusually good and unusually cheap. I've also held, you know, so this is one of the things that's happened here is that lumber has had this great run. So anything that's sort of close to lumber looks pretty cheap. So there's this Western Forest Group is cheap. And then there's this company, Zim, Z-I-M is the ticker. They're, they're like a like a shipping company. They're very well managed. They make lots of money. Shippers have been crushing it for the last few years. And I, you know, that there continue to be issues with shipping. And I, the, the last estimate that I heard for when it was going to be sorted out coming through the Los Angeles ports was something like late 2023, Whoa. which I interpreted as like, that's as far out as we can think. Whoa. And if it goes beyond that, then... Yeah, you know, that's crazy. We, we, listen, we listen to, um, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, Maersk, the like yeah. the international shippers earning call, uh, earnings call, and they said the same thing, like mid-2023 um, was when they're expected to start unravelling. Jeez. Yeah. That just sounds like that's the num- That's the thing you say when you don't know. You just yeah, like, yeah. Gee, we hope it's done by then. We can't figure out how it's going to be done before then. Yeah, yeah, true. That's unbelievable. We've spoken a little bit about Meta or Facebook in this conversation and, you know, it's relevant because it's top of your screens. I seem to remember the first time we spoke, you mentioned, maybe not at that time, but previously Apple had been really high up in your screens. And I always just yeah. think back to that and think, Damn. God, I wish I'd bought Apple. <laughs> <laughs> well, Apple's funny, isn't it? Because Apple, I even wrote about Apple in the Acquirers multiple because it's one of those stocks that for whatever reason, nobody seems to believe in it like mm. consistently because it, I think it's this iPhone replacement cycle is about three years and people seem to forget every three years or well, there's this question about whether people will continue to buy the new iPhone. And so it got cheap in 2013 and I tweeted about it in 2013 and then it got cheap again in 2016 and then it got cheap again in 2019 and that's when Buffett loaded the boat in mm. 2019. And here we are in 2022. It's, it's looking pretty expensive to me at the moment, but it's, it's not in any of my screens, but it wouldn't surprise me if it... Maybe maybe Buffett buying it has sort of put the seal of the Buffett seal of approval on it. Yeah. And now, it's, now it's not going to trade cheaply anymore, but it's been an interesting one. I, I agree with you. I didn't buy it. I should have. Yeah. Or people see that Buffett buys it and they're like, oh, it can't be a tech stock if Buffett's buying it. And so maybe that's like a jinx on it. <laughs> Buffett's the best tech investor, it turns out, of, of the last yeah. 30 years or so. I don't think anybody will like that, but that's I, I've been saying that's the greatest trade ever because he put $40 billion or something to work, which is a lot of money. And it was about a third of his book. So it was a lot of money relative to 
what he was slinging around to, or a third of his cash. And now he's had a lazy triple on it or more. Maybe it's a quadruple now. So in about two years. So the old fella's still got it and he's good at tech too. I mean, it's a pretty good trade, but is it better than when Bill Ackman put that $20 million hedge on and then (laughs) cried on TV and it turned (laughs) turned it into $2 billion? (laughs) The biggest no tears, the the best no tears bet ever. (laughs) The only only thing is, so I think the bigger, you've got to give more weight to the bigger trades because whenever I say that, somebody always comes and points out that the South African company that put the 10 cent trade on and never sold it. Naspers, Naspers mm. had this big chunk of 10 cent. And so Naspers, I think they put $20 million into it or something like that, which relative to what they had was a pretty big bet, but it wasn't the biggest bet. But then they just held it while it's run up a thousand times or something like that. Now Naspers is like, Naspers has had to split into two and it's still like the, the two biggest companies on the South African stock exchange. So that everybody wow. says that's the greatest trade ever, but Buffett did it. Nobody knew. So if you, if you say, okay, well, let's work backwards. If we look at every single stock on the entire stock market and find out who made any trade ever and didn't sell, then, then yeah, you're going to find, oh, this South African company bought this Chinese stock. But Buffett was well, well known in the most popular name on the market or the biggest, one of the biggest companies on the market in Apple and put an enormous amount of money to work and it's worked out really well. I think you're not going to get all of those four things together again or mm. for a very long period of time. So I think Buffett's got it. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Unbelievable. So Tobias, before we wrap up, you know, we are seeing a lot of commentary around buying value, get into value, you know, it, the time of growth is sort of over and for our community, it can be a bit of a confusing time to, to try and navigate. Do you have a piece of advice? You know, if someone is hearing that sort of news, is it as easy as buying a value ETF or um, what, what would you sort of close this up and summarize for, for our beginner audience? You know, this is this is my bread and butter. This is what I do. So there's lots of different ways that you can engage with me. So I have a book, Acquirers Multiple, which is like ten bucks. Uh, it's ten bucks US. I don't know what it is in this in, in Australia, but it's it's cheap, and you can read it in a couple of hours. It's written to a fifth grade reading level, so it's pretty easy to get a grasp of. <laughs> so Bryce and might be able to get through it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just. <laughs> it's really hard to write it to a fifth grade reading level. I got to say, it's, it's not easy to do that. But then that gives you an introduction to the website and how how to use the website. And the website has some US names on it anyway. And then I have ETFs that buy names out of those two screens for the most part. And so those are ways that you can engage with my style of value, but there are lots of different styles of value. There are people who are more towards the Buffett end and people who are even growthier than that. And that's, they're, they're still value investors. They're just doing a different sort of calculation of value to the one that I am doing. But basically the idea is that you've got some fundamental justification for what you're doing when you're buying these stocks. And that's really all there is to it. You think that the business can grow very rapidly for a long period of time and you can buy it at a price now that gives you a good enough risk-adjusted return over that next five or 10 years or whatever it, whatever your sort of holding period is. That's value investing. I mm. just think it's a little bit harder than the stuff that I do, but it's, it's definitely what's his name, common stocks and uncommon profits, Phil Fisher style of value investing, which is uh, Buffett says that he's 85% Graham, 15% Phil Fisher. And so there are people around to a, you know, 100% Phil Fisher and they've, they've had a pretty good run over the last 10 years. So a reminder for uh, for you guys listening, the ETFs that Tobias runs, Deep and Zig. So check them out if you're interested. Value After Hours is the podcast that uh, Tobias runs and Deep Value and Acquirers Multiple are the two books. So plenty of content to uh, keep track of and, and engage with um, and Tobias 
advice is uh, if you if you want to ask some questions or, or whatever, I'm sure he would be uh, happy to answer. We yeah. won't give, we won't give out his direct he, email. But he's um, very he's very active on Twitter. <laughs> although on Twitter. the uh, the Twitter handle isn't Tobias Carlisle. No, no, it's Greenback. It's it's really I, I did it because it was the name of the the old blog that I had, but it's G R E E N B A C K D. It was like punked. You remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like <laughs> so I make sure you- green <laughs> make, makes no sense. But anyway, it, it, it's it's what I'm stuck with because I'm, I'm, uh, I've got the blue check mark. I can't change it. Now. <laughs> it's all about the blue check mark. Well, Tobias, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. We love uh, checking in with you, uh, what feels like on an annual basis now to get your view on markets. And um, now uh, it feels like it's absolutely your time to shine. So we'll keep track of you over the over the next sort of 12 months or so and, and all the best. And, and uh, I know that our audience would have taken a lot of value from that conversation. So thank you very much. That's very kind, gents. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love chatting to you too particularly and I see that you guys have been crushing it too I, I get a copy of the AFR and a few little things so congrats oh, well done. Oh, nice. thank you very much glad we've made it over to the states yeah, in some way the AFR has made AFR it over to the, made the states and we've written their coattails <laughs> I think I read it on LinkedIn so oh, damn. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well thank you very much to us Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.